0: Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, um, it's good to be uh, here with you all this evening. And um, every week, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer uh, together, and um, it can be really easy at times to, to begin to recite the Lord's Prayer, much like any liturgy that begins to feel normal or ordinary, we, we can do it rotely um, and kind of go through the motions, forget what it is that we're actually saying. But it's also easy sometimes with the Lord's Prayer to think that we have to pray those exact words. That that's, those are the words that Jesus gave us to say, and so we're going to say them exactly as he gave them to us. Um, but really, this is more of an outline of prayer, right? That, that he is giving us words and, and phrases that we ought to be praising or hallowing his name. We're supposed to be asking for him to do his work, to be at work in this world, But we also pray specifically for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, It's really important as we look at this text together this evening. We don't ask for God to take us away from here and to take us into a heavenly home. No, we ask for heaven to come here on earth. Like that his rulership that is complete currently in the heavenly realm would be complete here in this world, here and now. As, as theologian N.T. Wright says, who's written a lot of really wonderful things about the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection, um, he says the Lord's prayer and all prayers are about asking for God to colonize earth with the life of heaven. I love that phrase, to colonize earth with the life of heaven, that it would come down from heaven and make what exists there true here and now. So we pray that prayer because we know the end of God's story. We know what it ultimately will be like when heaven and earth are one. And so it's with that in mind that we read Revelation 21 together. Um, And so let me pull it up right now. Uh, It's printed in your bulletins, or if you like to to use another uh, mechanism, feel free to do so. It's at the very end of the Bible. Um, Technically one chapter in. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. This is John, the Apostle John, writing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. And though this ends in a way that perhaps is harsh, we still say this is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. Would y'all please join me in prayer as we consider it. Our God and Father, Lord, though we read here what it is that your word says and though um, we can be challenged by it, both to see a future that you have guaranteed in Jesus Christ, but also to see things that perhaps we struggle with. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that you would give me the words to speak and be at work through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, about a year ago, we, uh, we began to meet as a, as a core group of folks who were planning to launch Advent Houston. and. Um, uh, we wanted uh, right around this time a year ago to, to begin uh, to try and come up with a name uh, for this church plant. And so uh, as I did, I was a little nervous about what we could end up with if we went full democracy. I went ahead and I gave us about 10 names that I, I that I personally liked or um, that I could at least live with uh, and then opened it up and we whittled that down to five names uh, and then from there, we asked for everybody who was a part of, of kind of this core launch team to go out and to talk to, uh, to one Christian and one non-Christian and just hear what their, uh, what their thoughts were about the name. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, nobody really liked like Authentic Faith Christianity or Pres- Presbyterian. I don't know. Uh, I don't, that was just one that I would have nixed from the get-go. Um, My point in saying all this is actually part of the reason that we named Advent. uh, We named it Advent Houston, was that it was it was actually very popular for two reasons. One, um, people didn't have much of a negative connotation with the name, uh, which was really good. Um, But secondly, the positive connotation that they had with it was that um, that it it actually described the hope and the mission that we as a church uh, we long to have, because. At the word advent means arrival. It means coming. And as Christians, we recognize that there are two advents. First, the first coming of Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, eternal, came, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. We talked more about how that has informed our mission last week. But we also believe that Jesus now sits upon the throne in the heavenly places, and he will come again in the second coming. All right? And so our church name, Advent, is mit- meant to capture this waiting period between the first coming and the second coming and what it means to live in light of those two things right? as we wait upon him patiently to return. So whether you're waiting... For college to end, or you're waiting for what's next in your career, or you're waiting uh, to get married, or to have children, uh, waiting to be an empty nester, perhaps, right? Whatever it is that you might be waiting for, we know that it that we wait in light of what the Lord has done and what the Lord is doing. That we wait for the Lord to act. We minister with the model of the incarnation, his first coming, but we minister in light of his second coming as well. And our passage this evening gives us a picture of what that looks like with the second coming. And so I want to look at Revelation 21 um, in uh, three different ways, and and this time I, I I picked three Fs. I don't normally do that, but it just kind of once I hit two, I felt like I had to go with three. Um, So the first is uh, we see a flourishing creation. The second is that that God calls us to faithful living, and the third is we see what it is that is our final dwelling. Um, So flourishing creation, faithful living, and final dwelling. Um, Let's first look at at the flourishing creation that God God brings. So the Bible begins and it ends in very similar language and very similar imagery, right? At the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because we often use the word creation um, as a synonym for for earth or or for universe, um, we sometimes don't think about God creating the heavens, right? We think of him creating earth but scripture is clear that God created the heavens and the earth. And here in our passage from the very end of the Bible, we see that the new heavens and the new earth are coming and the first heaven and the first first earth have passed away. And this is not to say that God is, is scrapping what came first in favor of something that's coming later. He's not annihilating it Just destroying it and making something brand new. As some people, you may have heard it say, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new, not behold, I am making all new things, right? But rather, this new heavens and earth are to be considered new because they're so qualitatively different from the old. Did y'all know that we believe that Jesus is currently in bodily form in the heavenly places right now? That, That his resurrected and his healed body, his new body is residing in heaven. And his body is now qualitatively different from what it was beforehand in that it will never taste death again. And so That is what John is reminding us of when he talks about a new heavens and a new earth. It's qualitatively different. It it will not bear the curse any longer. But it is one that has been renewed, reinvigorated, and re-enlivened. And John tells us that this new heavens and new earth will be amazingly different. But then he drops this very strange detail, right? He says that the new heavens and the new earth will have no more sea. Um, and so like, if you like the beach or maybe you like going out on a boat, you're like, wait, I, I wanted that to stick around. What's going on here? Um, well, again, this is highly figurative language. It's not about the sea specifically, but rather it's what the sea represents throughout the Old Testament. See, the oceans and the seas throughout the Old Testament were seen negatively negatively. They represented chaos and disruption. And even earlier in Revelation, that's where the beast comes from, or that's where the serpent comes from, comes out of the sea. They represent separation as well and turmoil. They represent unruly and uncomfortable forces of destruction. So the Noahic flood, for example, is not merely about a flood, but it is actually about an undoing of creation. Right? So the judgment that God pours out upon creation is even more than you might anticipate. He's saying that what has happened up to this point is so drastic that I'm bringing it back to what it was before creation existed. Right? That's what the sea represents. So John sees a vision of this new heavens and new earth where there is now no longer any sea, where there's nothing separating God's people from one another any longer where there's now nothing chaotic or disruptive or destructive happening in the world anymore. Unless we wonder what such a world might be like, he goes on to paint a further a figurative um, a, a, a picture for us. He tells us that in this new heavens and new earth, pain and suffering will be no more. Right? That there will be no more crying And not only that, but that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and and death itself will be dead. This is a world that exists as our world was always intended to exist, right where we live and work and relate and rest without sin, without death and without evil. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how suffering is actually a blessing because it drives us more deeply into relationship with Jesus. But we also see here that the absence of suffering is a blessing because it's actually the way it was intended to be. There's value in living in peace and in shalom, as the Bible would have, it, have us to know. And these last two years it felt pretty chaotic um, I, one of the things that's been really fascinating as we've planted this church has been the number of people in medicine that I've gotten to talk to. I, different medical students, perhaps, who even began med school in the midst of a pandemic. This has been a very disruptive season of life. We felt disconnection from one another. We felt loss of loved ones. We have felt the hurt of different diagnoses in our lives or in our families or amongst our friends. So how how much do we long for God to set it right, y'all? To have him look at us in the face and to wipe away our tears because all that is sad will ultimately come true, as Tolkien famously said. I think... um, our culture has kind of become trauma-obsessed. I don't know if y'all have paid, uh, noticed that as much as, as, as I have, but we, we often, you'll hear people say things that are just sort of a, a nuisance have become sort of a trauma uh, in their life. Like, my boss chewed me out. It was so traumatic. Um, will be sort of something that's said. But one of the, the problems with that type of language is that there's a cheapening of the hardship that we've all been through. Some of us have been through more traumatic events than others. And if you're wondering whether or not it was a traumatic event, um, whether or not it has stayed with you forever is probably a good indication that it was more on the traumatic end of things. My point in bringing up all of this is that Revelation describes here um, that though we all have wounds and though some wounds would be deeper than others, This isn't a platitude that God wipes away every tear from our eyes. This isn't just him putting us on his his lap and being like, you know what, bud, just get out there again, dust it off, and kind of, you know, you're all good, now get back out there. That's not what God is doing here. He's describing the genuine and the true healing that will actually happen of the traumatic events that have happened in your life. Those biggest hurts, whether they've been divorces, your own or someone else's in your life, their diagnoses, whether whether it's a death, whether it's an assault or an abuse that has happened in your life, whatever those things have been, God is promising here that he is dealing with it and he will deal with it. The tears from these events will be wiped away because you will be healed. Now, How on earth is this possibly true? was because he bore our wounds that we might be healed. Right, God is surgically repairing our own wounds through Christ, by Christ taking upon those very wounds himself. And now we bear those wounds, yes, we bear them still right now, but we know in the future one day he will come and he will heal them and then he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's not a yes, sir, go back out there and get it again, but it's an I'm coming, and I promise you, I'm going to make everything that was wrong right again, even your deepest wounds. So, if that's a picture of the future, then how does it inform what we're to do and and who we are to be as a church? Um, And so, let's look next at at faithful living. Well, the book of Revelation is a unique genre, right? It, It isn't a narrative. Uh, it isn't a letter. It's not, um, it's not poetry either. It's what, what we refer to as apocalyptic. Um, and so it's, it's highly figurative language that's meant to encourage the, 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 uh, the hearer um, or the reader to continue on in the face of immense pressure or immense struggle. And so John's original audience here was undergoing um, kind of unparalleled persecution. This is during the time of Nero. Uh, when, when he would light the streets of Rome with uh, with Christians at, the, at that point in time in terms of persecution. And so toward the end of the passage here that is meant to, to, to provide a lot of hope, we see this kind of abrasive juxtaposition in verses 7 and in verse 8, where John writes, he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, so on and so forth. will their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So sort of out of nowhere, um, out of the future state of peace and flourishing that John has been describing, it seems that like, we're slapped across the face really harshly with this sense of judgment. Um, what is going on here? Well, first, verse seven, what is translated in the ESV is conquerors is probably better translated as something else. And in fact, if you were reading in a different translation, it probably was translated as something else. Um, Most translations use the word overcomer, right? So it's not conquerors who are just like, yeah, I'm out there, I'm crushing life, or I'm the one who's, who's colonizing the new heavens and the new earth. And because I got out there and I conquered, it's now mine. That's not what this means. It's talking about overcomers. Because, right, again, John is writing to people who are existing in immense persecution. He's writing and calling them to live faithfully. So he's saying that for all of those who overcome, who persevere in the midst of challenge, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of persecution, those who continue as disciples of Jesus Christ, then you will be sons and daughters of God. That's what he's saying. So again, we're not talking about conquering or overcoming in a triumphalistic or militaristic sense, but rather in this context and hope that God the Father has sent, the, has sent God the Son to help us. And as Paul says in his letters to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will, be, will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Those who overcome are those who are led by the Holy Spirit United by him who inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Right? Those who overcome are those who put off worldly temptation and they put on Jesus Christ. And we become sons and daughters. So this word overcome or conquerors as we saw it is juxtaposed actually with, with the first phrase and first word of verse 8. The overcomers are, over, uh, are, are juxtaposed against the cowardly because it's that term that is the subheading of all that comes after it, right? Of all of the litanies of sins that we see then after. But the, so the point of, of that particular passage isn't to talk about sin that deserves judgment, um, specifically in this particular verse. That's not what this passage is about. There are certainly other elements of that in and throughout the Scriptures. Um, but the cowardly description is referring to those that forsake their first love that forsake what it means to abide in Christ and to be His bride. So there are those who overcome the temptations and persecutions of this world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are those who are cowardly, that give in, that just go with the flow rather than abiding in Christ. And John is exhorting us here to remain steadfast, that we are to overcome and to not lose heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Not because you can do it or I can do it on our own, but because he can and he has. So what does it look like for us to remain steadfast and faithful, to be conquerors in the sense that John means here? Well, it looks like putting off our old selves and putting on Christ. It means putting off gossip and putting on love, putting off greed Or scarcity, or a selfish mindset, and putting on the abundance of the inheritance that we're gonna have in Jesus. It also looks like helping one another to live and to remain steadfast in the midst of challenge, to offer encouragement in light of life's trials, to continue doing some of the things that we've already been doing as a church family bringing meals to the sick, praying for one another, doing those little things helping each other remain and overcome. And we do this in light of our future home. And that's our third point, the final dwelling that we'll have. No matter who you are, you have a deep desire for home. We try in so many different ways to kind of perfect that and make it the home of our dreams. Um, uh, No matter how much money we spend on our houses, no matter how much like family therapy we go through uh, to try and make our interconnectedness work uh, with one another, we still cannot recreate the desire for perfect home life together. I think the closest thing that I can think of when I think of the new heavens and the new earth is is Colorado, uh, because for me, that's like my happy place. Um, Whenever I'm there, I, I don't stress um, we have a lot of fun together when we're there as a family. Um, I, 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 we don't, it's not that we don't work. We do work, but uh, it's, it's seemingly like non-cursed filled work, the, the type of work that doesn't fill you with anxiety. Um, and whenever I'm away from Colorado, it's not that I just yearn to go back or that I constantly am complaining about living in Houston. No, it's not that at all. I love Houston. I love being here. But it's that every summer when we drive up to Colorado, the closer that we get, the more I roll down the windows and begin to smell the air. And it reminds me of what, it was, of what, of what God created us for. That sense of home. Right? My shoulders ease up a little bit. I start to smile a little bit more. And I may, may uh, be known to have cried on occasion uh, when I begin to smell uh, the, the beautiful smell my happy place. Well, in many ways, that's what it is like as Christians in our relationship with the Lord. We aren't sitting away from Him and and thinking, I've noticed this causation between my anxiety growing and the more that I've tried to live under my own strength and in my own power. We don't really reflect on it that way. Or we sometimes don't even realize how much we long for home until we get a small whiff, a small smell of what it will actually be like, like we do in this passage here. But that's what this passage does for us. It helps us to see what home is actually meant to be like. I know we we should long for it more. Y'all, you know, we weren't designed to live. We were designed to live with our God, forever near Him. We were designed to dwell with Him, without sadness, without pain without mourning or crying, without thirst or without fear. Not just, and this passage isn't talking just about like living in proximity to God, but it's about an intimacy with him. It paints a picture of a bride and a groom, like right? this consummation that, that happens through this harmonious, beautiful relationship where we are adorned as his bride and he is our bridegroom. Where he makes us as beautiful as he is beautiful. And it's in light of this future, of this home, that we're called to live, where we're called to bring the aroma of the new heavens and the new earth here in this ever so small way, to bring the aroma of life, to bring the aroma of love, to bring the aroma of friendship and forgiveness. Henry Nowen, who's a Catholic theologian and writer, and uh, ran a, a house um, for... Actually, I don't think he ran it, but uh, reflected on, on his life and ministry with people who were diagnosed with, um, with massive disabilities. He had this to say about Christian community. It's actually printed inside your bulletin. He said, the whole meaning of the Christian community lies in offering a space in which we wait for that which we've already seen. Christian community is the place where we keep the flame alive among us and take it seriously so that it, so that it can grow and become stronger in us. In this way, we can live with courage, trusting that there is a spiritual power in us that allows us to live in this world without being seduced constantly by despair, lostness, and darkness. That's how we dare to say that God is a God of love, even when we see hatred all around us. That's why we can claim that God is a God of life, even when we see death and destruction and agony around us. We say it together. We affirm it in one another, waiting together, nurturing what has already begun, expecting its fulfillment. That is the meaning of marriage, friendship, community, and the Christian life. Together as Advent, we, we manifest the future. Not, not in the way that you may have heard people talking about like, yeah, I manifested that contract to happen. Right? No, you didn't like, make the thing you wished for happen. No, what manifest means is to make evident. So we make evident the new heavens and the new earth to this world here and now. This world that is decaying and broken, we offer them a homecoming of sorts. Right? As students who are here for just a short period of time, as patients who are seeking treatment, as people who, who long to find a home and haven't yet found it. We help them to feel, to smell the aroma of home. But we don't do this individually. We do this together. Because I need both the Holy Spirit and I need you all to do this. You, you need the Holy Spirit and you need me to do this. As we seek to, count, uh, to cast off the counterfeit joys that we've often flown to in our world. They really uh, like, you know, are, are essentially like putting Axe body spray on the body odor that we already uh, are going through. right? That sticky sweet that's still covering up nastiness smell. That's what those counterfeit joys are in this world. May we not succumb to them. But may we keep our mind and our eyes fixed upon the true home that we have in Jesus. May we long for his life and his aroma. And may people around us say that something is right and good about what's happening here. Not because of what we are doing, but because of what God is doing in our midst. That it reminds them of what home always should have been. The way that this earth should have been. Let me conclude with this. Though this passage doesn't deal with with judgment um, of all sin, uh, it does reference judgment, right? And judgment is not something that feels good uh, to talk about. And so you might be like, well, why are you talking about it, Taylor? Uh, It doesn't feel very good. Well, actually, because judgment is a part of God's setting to right the world that is wrong. We cannot have the good in this world unless the bad has been separated from it. We cannot have it unless what, uh, what is sin has been called out as sin. What is wrong has been called out as wrong. There cannot be order and peace without judgment. There cannot be shalom without it. And though God does talk about judgment and punishment here, for all who sin and do wrong, which is every single one of us, he also paints a picture of redemption and freedom that is far greater than that judgment and punishment. As he says here, he says, for all who, thirsty, who are thirsty for righteousness, for all who are thirsty for relationship with him, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have left undone in this world, he says, I will give you the springs of the water of life, meaning I will give you myself and you will pay nothing for it. All you need to do is to feel thirsty. All you need to do is to long for relationship with him. For he paid the cost of God's judgment that we might know his peace. As we live in light of Christ's first coming and in light of his second coming, which is assured by the Holy Spirit, we need to remember that all of our longings, all of our desires for the way it's supposed to be are met in Jesus. We thirst for him. We desire for him. He is our true home. And he offers himself to us free of charge. Would y'all pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the home that you are making for us. Lord, we thank you for uh, the dwelling that we will have with you, where you will take away every one of our wounds every one of our deep hurts. You will fix them because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for us, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would deepen that faith. Lord, that we would lean more and more upon your promises, thirsting more and more for Jesus. And I pray for those of us who don't know you this, this afternoon, I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself clear to us that we might know you better, see what it is that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, and that you would give us that which you require, which is faith. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Amen.